Welcome to my podcast. Here is Spiros McGarris. I would like to introduce you to Rob McGovern from Workday. Rob, um, thank you for having time to speak to me today and share some insights on AI, machine learning, how it applies at your company. And I hope uh, and I'm certain we will get some great insights from my listeners and yours. Rob, can you tell a little bit about your role and a little bit about your company? Workday? Sure, thanks. Thanks, Paris. I'm, I'm Rob McGovern. I'm a Senior Director of Product Management for Machine Learning at Workday. Um, Workday has has two main product areas. One is uh, everything related to the office of the, uh, the Chief HR Officer. So thinking about uh, recruiting, uh, talent management, uh, hiring, promotion, uh, payroll, all of that stuff kind of ties together CHRO. We also have our uh, financial side, which handles the, the general ledger and the basically the books for a company. Uh, and that includes everything from uh, invoice payments, expenses, uh, again, some of the payroll stuff slides between the two. Uh, but really backing how a company works and providing the, the tools and systems to help a company actually focus on what their business is and do their job. And, and our job then is to help them uh, recruit great talent, keep that talent uh, actively engaged and employed and grow, growing them throughout a career, uh, keeping track of the financial side, making sure that they know how much money they have available and where they're going and what their forecast and, and plan looks like. Um, for me, I'm, I'm super excited about being at Workday for, for two main reasons. One is I just love the culture of the company, but that's a whole separate block. Uh, but second, on the machine learning side, there's so many opportunities to use machine learning and AI techniques in both of these spaces, both separately and together, uh, that the, the field for me is just wide open and my team can go anywhere we want that, that meets the mission of use machine learning to make our products better. So we have full reign across the entire product stack and we're, we're in almost every spot that you can see inside of Workday. I mean, we spoke before the podcast started. I mean, Workday is a global company for people who don't know it. And you've just been uh, to Europe and uh, we didn't have time to ask. It just came to me now uh, that uh, what kind of insights do you get from uh, your customers when you were in Europe? So we had a, a major user conference called Workday Rising Europe uh, in Stockholm uh, two weeks ago. And it was about uh, three really intense days with several thousand of our customers, uh, again, primarily, but not exclusively uh, Europe-based. Uh, it was fantastic for me because I, I've spent a lot of time talking to our US-based customers, and this was a good exposure to the, the European viewpoints. Uh, from the ML side specifically, it was interesting because the, um, the concerns are different. Uh, in the United States, we don't tend to spend as much time thinking about uh, data privacy, it's, but it's a top-level concern for everything that's going yeah. on inside of Europe. Um, we tend to look at risk and risk management a little bit differently. I, I think European countries, just in general, not exclusively, but some, some many of them are uh, much more uh, risk averse, especially with novel technologies. Uh, there's some interesting conversations and areas around um, uh, stuff that's not really ML, but it impacts ML of uh, data privacy or, or uh, uh, data residency requirements. And are those actually protecting the citizens of a particular country, uh, or is it actually trying to protect the business of that country? and force, force companies to, to own or transition uh, intellectual property to subsidiaries. So some really fascinating and deep conversations around that. Uh, but to me, the, the big excitement, um, you know, kind of the alignment of where Workday is going felt really good with our European customers. They believe in a skills-based HR approach. They believe in uh, better finance and financial controls and understanding what's going on. And how do, I, how do I consolidate and close my books faster and get a more accurate view today of what my finances look like? Uh, and although they they all 
really are excited about the potential and believe in the power of ML, they are all definitely concerned about the um, the regulatory pressures of uh, both existing laws, things like uh, HR law about bias uh, and financial yeah. law about various kinds of financial controls, but also new and emerging uh, almost fear-based laws directly around the technology of ML and AI. And uh, when you talk about uh, privacy, is it different? I mean, I know we are kind of advanced uh, through GDPR in Europe. Yeah. Do you see that in that respect, do European laws and policy regulations guide American companies and, and regulators? The it, it's tough to yeah. I was gonna say it's tough to definitively say yes, but it's also impossible to say no. Uh, every every U.S.-based company has to comply with those laws if we want to uh, do business in in Europe. Uh, so making sure that we have a data privacy impact assessment that we can give a customer and say this is the data we're consuming from you and what we're doing with it, walking the line between between what Workday really wants to be a data processor, not a data controller. Mm-hmm. And especially with the data we use, it's highly sensitive. It's it's your HR data, it's your financial data. It's the stuff that that really has a lot of value if it gets out to the world. We we take that very very seriously inside of Workday. So in, in our company view, a, a lot of what we do is driven by GDPR and and other uh, EU centric privacy laws. And we try to build our systems for that. Um, but we are seeing some of that same thing transition into the U.S. Uh, California in particular is leading the way on a lot of privacy laws. Uh, but there are others in play as well across the states. And at the federal level, we really haven't quite tackled it yet. So, but uh, I mean, makes it's common sense that basically you have to uh, build your algorithms and your whole company philosophy on the strictest rules in the globe, in the world, though, no? because I don't think you will have, I mean, although maybe the laws are a different, a little bit different in the states and there might be in Europe, but you have to apply one solution to everyone, no? or is it, or do you apply different uh, or provide different solutions to different customers in different regions? So, yeah, you had a you had a couple of key points there. One is uh, yes, we have to build our entire system, not just our algorithms, but how we display data, how we manage data, what our infrastructure looks like, uh, to be in compliance with the laws. And as a as a data scientist, and machine learning person, it, it frustrates me sometimes. I want to have five years of history because that's how I'm going to build really good algorithms. But with GDPR, we actually put a, we put a limit of storing personal data for 14 days. You know, we have up to 30 under GDPR, but we, we set a hard limit of 14 days and we flush it all out. So our system has to account for that and, and be designed that way to think about, um, sometimes we can't even do things we want to do because we don't have the data. Other times we have to change how we do it. With the data residency and data privacy, we're actually putting a lot of focus on uh, where and how we can have certain key centers that are that allow us to look across tenant and build new algorithms and do research, uh, but try to push forward existing models out to places where the data residency requirements are are holding us back from gathering that data. Uh, you know, Germany comes to mind. Singapore is another one. No, There's several. It's, it's a problem. It's a it's a problem for Europe as well. You know, I yeah. mean, regulation protects people, but on the other hand, it hinders innovation. You know, but yep. it's to find the balance, which I hope regulators uh, work closely with companies like yours, in order to to see uh, find a middle ground. You know, where yep. we protect people, but we also advance our industry. No, and I know. Uh, I, I think we're going to have a separate blog around this. We have an ML trust team, and we also have a, a corporate affairs team that are very actively engaged in both 
trying to uh, to influence and help build the right laws, mm-hmm. uh, as well as to make sure that we're doing not just what the law says, but also what's right. So it's it's a very core part of how we build inside of Workday. Um, it also gets really interesting. I mean, if you think about just about the HR space, the the rules around HR are very pretty dramatically from country to country. So our models even have to account for that. And and we go all over the map. Sometimes we have models that are unique to a tenant, uh, something like expense protect, where we're looking at which expenses a customer or sorry, a, a person has submitted to their company. And we're flagging them for various reasons that we found as anomalous. The way that you do expenses is going to be very different than the way that Workday does expenses and is very different than every other customer we have. So we build a model that is unique to the tenant. Uh, so the it's other, customized. Yeah. So on the other extreme though, we have things like our skills cloud that we use to back HR. The definition of a skill, the choice of what is and isn't a skill, we go across not just our tenants, but also a large number of external data sets. And we build one model and we push that out to all of our customers because it's it's pretty much universal. If you can figure out where um, product management looks looks and acts like inside of a block of text, it doesn't matter which customer is using it. It's going to be about the same, and that's that's really the value for things like a large language text sets. So we'll, we'll build one common model and push it out, and and on a case by case basis, we'll go everywhere across the map from truly individual for a tenant to truly universal across tenants. Uh, I mean, this is the next question I have, which I always ask is, can you talk about any use case? I mean, not in extreme detail, but I mean, basically, you know, basically the, the problem a, a typical customer who comes to you has, and, and you know, there's always some challenges that have yeah. to be, uh, you, we need to overcome from both sides, you know, but so people get a better picture, you know, you know, your customers, they know your, your services, but for new customers, you know, that gives them some flesh to your offerings. Yeah, uh, it's a fantastic question. And ML as a technology stack, I mean, we're using algorithms that didn't exist six months ago or, or even you know, some uh, fairly recent uh, innovative kind of work. So it's hard to go back and say, this is the standard practice. You're, mm-hmm. you're continually evolving, you're continually growing. Uh, experimenting with new things. And that means you're going to have problems along the way. Uh, an area that's a particular focus to me right now is, is a challenge is one that we see from our customers. Um, ML is fantastic when you get it right. Mm-hmm. If, if you go to Netflix and you see the next queue up that is recommending the movie and it's something you like, you're going to say, that was fantastic. Thank you, Netflix. If you see something that is related, obviously related, hey, it's another Marvel movie. You're going to go, okay, that makes sense, but I've already seen it. But if you see something that is so out of context, you know, that you've been watching Marvel movies and then all of a sudden it gives you a romantic comedy that has nothing to do with Marvel. And you're going, why is that there? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Netflix is very I, I low cost. Both. I like them both, but you, you start questioning the algorithm. Yeah. And, and you don't know anything about the algorithm. You have no idea what data that Netflix is using to make that consideration. You have no idea how it's using the data to make that consideration. And you have no additional context to say, why is this showing up or, or not? But it's also very low risk, right? I, I don't care. I can skip that recommendation and move on to the next one. I, I don't have to invest any time unless I'm just sort of angry at Netflix for giving me this recommendation. Um, we see that same problem in everything that we do, whether it's on the financial side or the HR side. How do we help customers when we don't give them exactly what they expect? And I'm going to use as an example here, skills. You know, we see, we, we, we do a lot with skills. We can take a block of text like a resume or a job posting or job description uh, and extract which skills or infer which skills we think are associated with it. 
And we'll share that back out to a candidate or a recruiter and say, if, if you're a candidate, which skills do you want to tell the company that you have? And we'll give you recommendations off of what your resume looks like. Um, sometimes those recommendations are real obvious and easy. Sometimes they're a little bit strange. Um, we had an example recently where a customer was recommended the skill of mopping, M-O-P-P-I-N-G, like actually, you know, cleaning the floor. Mm -hmm. And he is a uh, executive in a company and he's like, why would I see this skill? This is ridiculous. But <laughs> as we started, <laughs> and, and I get it, right? Uh, yeah. my, my first question is, is this a legitimate skill, right? Do people get hired because of their skill in mopping? Can you get trained in how to mop? And the answer to both of those, absolutely yes. It's strange. I didn't know this until I had to go look it up. And it turned out that the reason that this particular person saw that skill was that the company that they're with has a whole division that uh, manages, hires and manages cleaning staff. Mm -hmm. And one of the key things that they use is, is the big mopping machines. And there's a whole special set of training you go through to, to learn how to use it. That's a good example. <laughs> so it it made sense in the back, but it certainly didn't make sense up front. But now the challenge for us is how do we put that explainability or that interpretability into the user experience? So now if he can if he can move his mouse over the skill mopping and see a description, it's not it's not taking a simple home mop and, and mopping a floor. It's using a big industrial power mopper that you know cleans the whole floor of a building in minutes, whatever. Um, if he can see context, why did I see the skill? Oh, it's because you used to manage the division that did that. And because of the the job description and the title and the role, this is some of the stuff that floated to the top about that particular division of your company. It's one of the most in-demand skills in that division. In fact, we actually found that the company had a job posting about it, that they called out the ability to mop as one of the key characteristics for hiring. And so we found all this. It's like, oh, okay, I can accept it now. But it was so weird to get that up front with no context. So that the challenge that I see is, is a really big one for us is that interpretability. Does it make sense to me? The explainability, what's going on behind the scenes? And then the transparency, what, what data are you using? You know, and, and you we know, talked I mean, about this. Those two things you mentioned now, I mean, that's a big thing, explainability of AI. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think the, that's the, one of the most important uh, trends we see the, for the future of developing AI. It has to be explained. We have to explain what it does, you know. Yeah. In order also to adjust, you know, if something goes wrong, if in that case was a perfect case of of cleaning the floor, that skill set. But if it were not, we should be able yeah. to, you know, to to correct it, the algorithm. Now, and that brings up a whole different question: Who should correct the algorithm? How should they correct it? Should the person who saw mopping, should, should we expect the person who saw mopping to give us feedback saying, "Hey, this is not a useful skill to me." Don't ever show it to me again. And should that then impact the company so that it never shows up again? And then how do you manage and, and trace that that kind of feedback? So there's it's it, you know, we like to think a simple answer. If I could just tell Netflix your algorithm is terrible, don't ever show me these kinds of movies. That's great if it's a unique model for me. But what if my wife uses my account and, and pulls the movie in? Rob, I like your example you gave now with your wife and Netflix that basically the algorithm might think you're watching and will give you different recommendations, but uh, but in reality, somebody else watched as well. So the whole algorithm could be giving wrong signals in the future due to the fact that uh, different people gave their preferences. Another question I uh, would love to ask you is you hear good and bad things about using AI uh, for HR. 
you know, and people will people will listen to our show will think about that because I mean it's obviously a lot in the press, you know. Yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit on this, you know, because it's like an elephant in the room, and I think we should address it. What are the benefits that that make it uh, that you know that compensate for any shortcoming? Because any everything has a shortcoming. But you know, why why do you think AI machine learning will benefit large organizations? I think that uh, HR in particular is going to be heavily impacted by machine learning for lots of reasons. One, um, we're moving to a more distributed environment. Uh, it was happening before COVID. COVID accelerated it. The whole concept of work from home, not in the office, geographically distributed teams. We've struggled with how to do this for a long time, and machine learning actually, I think, makes it faster and easier because we can we can handle a lot of the backend matching and, and optimization and um, uh, data processing, if you will. Where I think the real challenge is 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 two parts again. One, um, we have an awful lot of existing HR law, and almost the parts that I care about the most are really really around bias. How do you make sure that you're doing things in a way that is fair and equitable? That law exists. The way that you test for fairness and equitability has existed for decades in some cases. Machine learning is just another tool set, and we've got to figure out how to test the tool set for that same existing set of regulations and guidelines. We have a society, as a society have decided that uh, gender, ethnicity, race, religion, several of the characteristics, and, and again, it varies depending on where you are in the country, uh, are protected, and we don't want to have adverse incomes or uh, adverse impact on those groups. And ML and, and AI, it doesn't matter whether it's ML, AI, or rules engine, or, or even just a human-based process, you still have to evaluate it to make sure that you're not having adverse impact. The challenge with, with ML is, is sometimes with ML, when you give the same inputs, you don't always get the same outputs. It's, it's a complex mathematical model. It's not easy to trace through and, and give provability of what each step is doing. Uh, so that's where that fear comes in. Of, of it's, it's this black box magic where I have to have a lot of math expertise to understand how it's doing its evaluations, and I don't always get the same answer out. But that means you still have to figure out how you're going to test for these existing considerations. Um, where I think its its impact is highest, um, you know, what we see it is is little things in some cases, like changing our our search inside of our products to where using ML we can use a query intent and say when you start typing somebody's name, you actually just want to go to the page for that person. You don't want to see a result set of everything that has their name in it. So we'll just take you to the page. Or when you start typing a task, I want to um, request some paid time off or vacation time. We'll just take you straight to the task and bypass the search page entirely. That's benign ML has has no real bad impact possible. There's not really a bias that you can you can articulate associated with it. it. Doesn't need a human to make a decision that says yes, that was a good recommendation or bad recommendation. Because even if you don't like the recommendation, you can still get to the other results. Mm -hmm. Not a problem. On the other hand, uh, using AI to do uh, evaluation of skills is Rob a good public speaker? Well, let me run through a test and an algorithm and, and build some probability that the answer is yes or no. Gets a little risky because now we're making a decision with AI that impacts that person in all kinds of considerations. And similarly, the next stage, if I have a set of skills that I know Rob has or that Rob has said he has, does he fit the job? And is that the primary criteria to say he fits the job or are you using it as a decision support tool and for Workday, we tend to focus more on the decision support side. We would rather give a recruiter all thousands of candidates that apply for a job and say, these 10 seem to have the best fit of skills. You might want to look there first, which is a very different experience than saying, this is the candidate you want to hire. 
And it's it's subtle, but it's critically important to think about who makes the decision and how you put that decision back in the human's hands. So, so I can I can talk about this for a while. There's there's an awful lot. Oh, of I know I know. Here. <laughs> what the, you know? Since we're getting close to the uh, towards the end of our podcast, you know what excites you for the future? You know, in AI and how it it will be deployed at your company? I think the, you know, there's an awful lot of short-term excitement of things we're already working on, putting descriptions on skills, changing that explainability and interpretability. That's that's a very valuable and transformational set of work to do. But the one that really excites me for further down the road is generative ML. The ability to create, you know, right now we can take a, a block of text and we can tell you which skills are, are likely represented by that block. Whether they're exact matches or not doesn't matter. Just the way that you use the words, we can say it's, yes, probably the skill. Uh, but I want to be able to go the other way. I want to take a list of all of the skills that every single one of our tenants has for a product manager and be able to generate a job description for product manager that is good enough, that's a good 60, 70% correct for any company anywhere, so that the HR team can spend the time just doing the final tweaks. They don't have to spend the years sometimes building out their job catalogs of what are every role inside the company. Is there something? Is there something in the near future at the workday <laughs> you talk about now, or is it something uh, you you envision where we ha have to be heading? I think I think near happens really really fast in machine learning. Like I said, we're using things that didn't exist a year ago, two years ago, and and we're going to be using you know changing out entire systems based on what's coming uh, from from the research side and and the available services. Um, is it near term and that I can tell you a release? No. Is it near term and that we have team actually thinking and, and looking into it? Yes, absolutely. So I would expect that generative uh, ML to start showing up probably in like the, the 12 to 24 month horizon for us. It, we, we have to go there. It is the natural next phase. It, it's super exciting. Uh, there's a lot of innovation going on around that space. And I think it's going to, again, be transformative. Uh, think about how many th things we don't want to have a committee or group of humans or or some poor set of interns have to go collate a whole bunch of data. And ML is actually really, really good at that, at least getting us most of the way there. And then you can have a much smaller lift at the end of customize it for the way that I think my company thinks about the world versus your company thinks about it. But we can at least start with a good, you know, 80% of the way there with things like generative uh, generative text. Rob, since we're almost uh, at the end, is there something you would like to say at the end? You know, which you know, I mean, we could talk about uh, hours about AI machine learning, and I mean, you're one of the very uh, you know inspiring person. You know, you're very inspiring the way you talk about. It. You, you can tell that you love it. You know, <laughs> and you know that's great. I mean, I said at the beginning of the show that. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. But is there something we missed that uh, would, you would have loved to to talk about? You know, is something very close to your heart? I mean, I, I think the thing that's that's closest to my heart. Um, I think Workday is doing an awful lot, very much right. We have an ML trust team. We have a corporate affairs team that's going out and looking outside at, at which laws and regulations are, are coming soon and how to how to interact with them. Uh, we have a tremendous amount of internal innovation going on. And, and again, my team just is, is well-funded. We have a lot of freedom. Go find ways that ML is going to change the world. And sometimes those are, are short bets, and sometimes those are really long bets, and we're kind of empowered to, to take either way. So 
you know, if anybody out there is listening and, and using ML in their, their space or their environment, I'd say you have to build yourself a safe space where you can invest in research, experimenting with things that are new, thinking about the implications of where and how and why humans are going to interact with the system and whether you're okay with that or not. You know, we've had to kill features that were in uh, early adopter phase because at the end of the day, it just didn't meet our test for, for not giving, not making the customer experience worse. We had a, we had a, at least one case where we were doing something for recruiters. We gave the recruiter an option and it just would have led to bias uh, just because of human nature. So we said, okay, we're going to take this feature out. It's not a good feature. You have to be okay with that, right? This is a, an emerging field. It's rapidly changing. The regulations are rapidly changing, which makes it exciting, but it's also a little bit uh, open and <laughs> that there's, there's no defined path of what's right. So uh, for me, it's, you know, uh, part of what the, what drives me and the passion of it is, uh, it is it's interesting. It's big data. It's solving real problems. It's rethinking how we interact with systems and environments. But at the same time, remembering the human, right? How are they going to interpret what we're doing? And I don't want to have to explain multidimensional math to anybody and, and extracting features and giving ratings to features and none of that. I don't want to talk about that at all. But I do need to explain enough for the user that they're going to understand or agree with the results. And then behind the scenes, I can give that deeper explainability if they really need it about how the algorithm works. Rob, uh, that's a perfect finish to this podcast because you brought the human element back to, to, to the algorithms. And uh, it comes across that you believe in the combination of both. Thank you very much, Rob. And workday for uh, giving me the time, you know, to find out more what you do and the benefits of your solution and your insights. Thank you very much. Thank you.